As you know, last week we looked at the minor prophet Zephaniah, as I had explained that so much, or the Old Testament, is geared toward the coming of Christ. And of course, the first announcement of this comes in Genesis 3, right? When humanity sinks itself into sin and death, the very first announcement we get that some remedy will have to occur, we get it there. Uh, he will, God will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. He shall bruise his head and he shall bruise his heel. We get that first announcement that something's got to happen, right? Something's got to happen to make this right. And so when you, when you watch the Old Testament, it is a grand narrative that really is leading to the Gospel of Matthew, so that when we see the genealogy of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, it's answering the question, who will come and fight for us? This one will. And so in that spirit, this week again, I'm going to take us back to the Old Testament. So if you would, take out your Bibles and open them to the book of Micah. Now, if you're wondering where Micah is, it is in the Minor Prophets, so that last little section of literature right before the New Testament, it comes right after the prophet Jonah. So right after Jonah, right before Nahum, you find the book of Micah. And so often these prophecies remain obscure because they're often about the inner workings of social justice in Israel, the inner workings of oppression of poor and how justice is is meted out, but also grand narratives of judgment against the Ninevites or the Assyrians or, or whomever else. But within last week, as we saw Zephaniah, we saw an allusion to God's redeeming power and what he would accomplish. This week, in this particular prophecy, we're looking at something very specific. In other words, we're looking at something that is actually quoted in the New Testament as the prophecy or the coming of Christ being prophesied. And so that's where we are this morning. Uh, This morning, without getting into too much detail about Micah, Uh, There is all, you know, woe to those who oppress Israel. There's judgment coming. Israel herself had sinned and Judah. And so God was going to work judgment in her. And God begins in chapter 4 by referring back to the mountain of the Lord, kind of using allusions in the Old Testament to proclaim a message. And then he gets into the end of chapter 4 about Zion is going to be rescued. And then comes Micah 5. How is Zion going to be rescued? How is the Lord going to redeem his people? And that's what Micah 5 begins to answer for us that is ultimately culminates in Christ. And so without going into too many more details than that, we come now to Micah chapter 5, and this morning we're simply going to look at the first five verses as those specifically get to the heart of the Messianic prophecy. So, beloved of God, turn your attention now to the Word of God and hear the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod they shall strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. From ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. And I'm going to stop right there 
that ends the specific portion of the prophecy. So pray with me now. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that as we read this word and we know the story of the New Testament, we can see very clearly how Jesus is the fulfillment of this. In fact, in the Synoptic Gospels, it's quoted. And so, Father, thank you. Thank you for, in times past, telling us what you were going to do, then doing it, and then calling on us as believers in the New Testament to look back on what you've accomplished and to celebrate. Be with us now as we study your word. May it pierce our hearts. Amen. You know, when you read stories like this, it just reminds me, it reminds me of what I would call underdog stories. And I think most, most people like a good underdog story. I mean, it, it shouldn't be lost on us like when we're watching sporting events. So, you know, we, we know that the next big thing coming up is going to be March Madness and basketball. And how many of us who enjoy it, who watch that number 16 seed team who starts advancing deep into the tournament, we get excited. Why? Because they're not supposed to be there. They're, they're overturning the apple cart, as it were. Or maybe it's something a little deeper than that that maybe we don't readily acknowledge on the front end. Maybe it's this, that reminder that there is hope of success even when it feels like the odds are stacked against us. Even when it feels like there's no real earthly reason why there should be success, yet there is success. And when we think about life, some people excel sheerly from the amount of opportunities they get. Like with the amount of opportunity they get, it's kind of like eventually it's kind of hard not to, to excel. And yet some people excel in spite of the opportunities. One historical note that comes to mind to me is when you think about the early 20th century, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was elected president, and in, in, the, in history remembers him as a pretty great president. Now, not everything he did was great, but he's remembered as such. When you look at Roosevelt's life, I mean, you have to look at it. He came from a family of privilege. He had every opportunity in the world. He had so many opportunities, being a man of wealth, being a man who had political clout already by the time he came on the scene, that it it's no wonder that he did excel. Who was his predecessor? Who followed him? Harry Truman. What do you know about Harry Truman? Maybe not much. Well, I'll tell you this much. Harry Truman was the son of a poor farmer in Missouri. He was a man who didn't possess a college degree. He was a man who didn't have all the opportunities that Roosevelt had. He was a man who had to scrape, scratch, and fight for every inch that he gained, especially in the political sphere. He was constantly criticized. He was constantly criticized as being uneducated. And yet, when we look back on American history, we should be very grateful that God sent President Truman when he sent him for a time such as that, because he was the president America needed to see us through the next phase of development. Why did he succeed? Not because of all the opportunity, but because he, he was able to accomplish things that didn't seem possible for him. Why do we like those types of stories? Because they remind us that we too can succeed. They remind us that success doesn't always come from great opportunities. Sometimes it comes sheerly as from the Lord. When you read this little paragraph in Micah this morning, one of the things we take away from this, very clear things, is that God starts in the frailty and the poverty in what appears to be the smallness 
of humanity, and he builds something great. And it's not just true in Micah. I want you to think of biblical stories. Who was Moses? Moses is great because we were remembering as great. But remember, he was a man of not eloquent speech who constantly said, no, Lord, I don't, don't send me. I can't do it. And yet the Lord used him. Remember Joseph out of Genesis. Yeah, Joseph, the one that we remember, the great wisdom in Egypt. Who was Joseph? The forgotten son of an Israelite farmer who languished in prison until someone said, oh, yeah, I remember this guy. David. Think of David. We remember David. We know who David. We'll sing Christmas songs about the, the rod of Jesse or, or the seed of David. He was the smallest, the youngest of Jesse's clan, the one that Samuel goes, oh, not, not him, surely not him. God said, yes, him. Beloved, it's like I said last week, I want to repeat it again. It's in the frailty of humanity that God chooses to work, in the poverty of spirit, in the weakness of humans, that God decides to do something rich and big and beautiful. That is no less true when we come to the Messiah. We tend to associate the Messianic kingdom with power, and rightfully so, it is. It's the power of God unto salvation, right? It is. That's exactly what it is. But the Messiah is a picture of power made perfect in weakness. Consider Mary, consider Joseph. Who was Jesus? Well, he would have been no one in the ancient world. He is someone because he is God incarnate. And God raised him up from Mary and Joseph from a little town that was a byword in the mouths of people called Nazareth. God took something that looked destitute and weak and forlorn and threw it he brought in a kingdom that reigns forever. That's something worth celebrating. And at Christmas, when we think about these types of things and we remember why do we celebrate, it's because we celebrate the power of God perfected in weakness. How many of you, your confession is, I'm, I'm pretty weak. I'm pretty weak. And I'm thankful that life and hope and salvation doesn't depend on Brad or you for that matter. So this morning, without further delay, uh, there's one idea I want for us to see in this text, and it's this, that through weakness, the power of God works. That is, that is the message of Christmas, beloved. That is the message of Christmas. Through weakness, the power of God works. And so what we're looking at here, especially in Micah, as we think through this, what is this? It's uh, what we would call, it's the providence of God, a very unlikely providence, it's interesting that God says, I'm going to, I'm going to work from Bethlehem of Frathra, who are too little. <laughs> he, he says it, who are too little among the clans of Judah. But from you is going to come one, this little one. And we're going to get into the exegesis of this in just a minute. But I want to start off where Micah starts this off. So in, in chapter 5, verse 1, I think it technically was the last verse in chapter 4 in Hebrew, but in our English Bibles, chapter 5, Verse 1, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with the rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is setting up the messianic prophecy. What is that telling us? It's telling us there's, there's a problem in Israel. Israel is under siege. She's under attack. 
the judge of Israel, the leader of Israel, has been struck on the cheek. I mean, this is an open hand strike or, a, or a, the rod has, has struck this person on the face. They've been humiliated. They're degraded. What is this telling us? There's a need in Israel. There's a need in the people of God for something strong. They in and of themselves are not going to withstand what's coming. We've already seen it in the exile. Why was Israel exiled? Because of sin, deep, dark, ugly sin. What happened in the exile? They continued to sin. They, they, they consumed the idolatry of the nations around them. And then God ends the exile and he sends them home. And what does Malachi and Chronicles, uh, Second Chronicles tell us? That it didn't work. That when they came home, their hearts are corrupted. What is Micah 5 telling us? That we are in a position now that we are under attack. We're under attack from a power both within and without. And our, our strength, the things that we can muster, are not going to combat it. It's not going to stand. They're going to be stricken down. So that's verse 1 is setting the context for the why of this messianic prophecy. Why is this one coming from Bethlehem? Because verse 1 is true. So when verse 2 begins with, but you, or and you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, it's setting the contrast here. When, it look, when we get into verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and I'm going to stop right there, why does he single out, or why does he give further description to Bethlehem by calling it Ephrathah, which is not very easy to say in English? Um, try to say it to yourself. You don't have to say it out loud because you start going Ephrathah, I had to practice this several times this week to say Ephrathrah. Um, Bethlehem Ephrathrah, uh, because there's two there are two different Bethlehems in the ancient world, and, and Micah's making sure that we understand that this is the Bethlehem of David. This is the Bethlehem of Christ. This is the Bethlehem, very specific city from which Jesus would come. But then he, he begins to describe her who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. What does he mean by little? This is not just spatial. This is not a spatial statement. This is a statement of power. You who are too little, you are too small, you are of no account, no one gives much thought to you, you are, you are weak. So this little means a place of weakness, that the strength normally associated with other fortified cities, you don't have. Your abilities are low. You aren't worth much. All these things are implied by this little descriptor, little. You are too little. You don't count. So God says, to the one that doesn't count, I'm going to do something that is invaluable in and through you. To you who don't count. Well, this was the birthplace of, of David, and so when we think about that, that this becomes the paradigm, David, the shepherd king, who was of no account, the city of David, which was small and of no account, would come the true shepherd, the good shepherd, who would seem small and of no account. What is God's paradigm here? Very clear. He's going to take what is least in the world and from it bring something great. What is little and from it brings something magnificent. That's the beauty. That's the way of God's 
paradigm. But what I like here, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Now, it's hard to read that and not have Davidic implications. The ancient readers would have known this was David's town. David's town is popular in Christmas hymns because it's popular in Christmas hymns. When Micah was written, Bethlehem was nothing. We didn't sing, O little town of Bethlehem, then. We do now because of Christ. So I want that to, I want that to be before you. This was a little city. But when he's talking about the one coming forth from there, you can't miss the Davidic overtones. This Messiah who's going to come from this city is in some sense is going to be like David. Little, small, of no account. Not the first one you look at and think, this is a great king. So he's going to be like David in this way to fulfill prophecy. But he's also going to be of David in a humanistic way, in a human sense. He's going to be of the Davidic line. Why is that so important? (laughs) Because God remembers the covenant promises that he makes. He'd made a covenant promise to David in 2 Samuel. It's recorded, one from your house shall sit on the front throne forever. Yeah, you starting to catch that one? Um, Because I laugh at preachers who do that. And so it would be fitting for it to happen to me on the Sunday before Christmas. But um, Merry Christmas! Uh, Because that is the gift that keeps on giving all year long. Uh, all right, David, of David, covenant promise, Second Samuel, one shall be on the throne forever uh, from your line. So Jesus had to be of the line of David, right? Had to be of the line of David to fulfill the covenant promise. But beloved, I, I also want you to see the language in here and how beautiful and specific it is, because this is where it gets really super important. From you shall come forth for me. From you shall come forth for me. Do you see the divine and the human at work here? From you. From whom? From the people you are going to save, I'm going to draw Messiah out. So the very people that you are coming to save, you're going to be of that people. You're going to be from that people. Jesus is going to identify with those people. Why? So that in our weakness, Jesus knows our weakness and rescues us, that he comes from a place that is weak, quote unquote, in the strength of God. So from you, Messiah is God's work, God's initiative, but from you, from the people, He will come for me, for God, to do the work of God as God incarnate. And look at how it describes him. What is the work that he will do? He will rule. You'll be ruler in Israel. You will rule. He will be what we need. Not the judge of verse 1, not the leader of verse 1, but the true leader who can rescue as far as the curse is found. What is, what is the nature of this one coming? Because he's, he's for God. He's from God. He's for God. So when we go back to Genesis 49 and Jacob, who prophesies over his sons, he prophesies over Judah, the scepter shall never pass from your tribe. Jesus will hold the scepter of rule eternally. So this one is of Judah. He's from David, but he is God incarnate. Why will this ruler succeed where others have failed? Because this ruler has a power that no other ruler has had. This ruler comes in the power of eternal life, 
not a corrupted flesh. This ruler comes as one who is sinless and perfect, not as one who is corrupt. This ruler is everything you are not and you need and can give you the one thing that you can't achieve on your own, life. That's why this ruler is special. So frailty, frailty is the context. When you look at this, frailty is the context with which God God comes. I'm, so he's not, he's not coming as one might expect. If you look at Scripture, it is so often that God turns uh, conventional wisdom on his head. Saul looked like a king. He spoke like a king. He was not a true king. David did not look like a king. He did not speak like a king, and yet he was kingly. He was a man after God's own heart. All the learned men in the time of Jesus weren't the ones that saved Israel it was the, the scandalized son of a carpenter and a peasant woman who had no rich history, who was not the product of some rich trail of rabbis, but this one from Nazareth. God loves frailty. God loves to take human frailty and use it for His glory. He's done that with Messiah. He does that with us. So, as verses 1 and 2, 2 specifically kind of set the parameters, what does verse 3 through 5 tell us? Well, that, that begins to talk about what it means for Messiah to rule. What, what did it mean? What is, the, what is the goal, really, of the incarnation? Well, he begins in verse 3, "'Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel.'" I'm going to stop right there. What is that verse telling us? This is sobering. This is hard, actually, what this verse is telling us. He shall give them up. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. What is he saying? Suffering is for the people of God. The people of God are going to suffer. They are going to suffer the consequences of sin. They're going to suffer the realities of living in a sin-cursed world. They are going to suffer uh, for foolishness, for poor decisions. They're going to, to suffer when their suffering by the world standard is really illegitimate. They are going to suffer. And so a message of Christmas time is suffering is real. It comes to the righteous and the unrighteous. Sometimes we suffer over persecution. Sometimes we suffer because we've made dumb decisions. Sometimes we suffer because somebody else is evil. What is the answer to all that suffering? For her who is in labor to give birth. The very thing that we've been singing about this morning. That consequences of sin are real. But what does God promise here? Beloved, It'll almost drive you to weeping when it washes over you. Yeah, you'll suffer. But here's what the Lord, the sovereign Lord of the earth says. I will personally intervene for you. I'm not going to delegate this out. I and the Son of God will come and will bear your burdens and will bear your curse and will die your death and will give you a life that you didn't earn. I personally We'll do this. So when we think about Christmas time and this season, it is God intervening personally, putting himself between the hammer and the anvil. Have you ever seen a blacksmith strike a piece of hot iron and watch those sparks fly and all this, this unmolded thing become an instrument of precision, of beauty? That's what it is. It's, 
It's Jesus now becoming the very thing that we couldn't to give us the very life that we couldn't earn. But I love here the subtlety. What does he say? It brings healing and restoration. If you look at verse 3, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. What is it talking about here? Does this mean that uh, is Micah making a statement about ethnic Jews or, or ethnic Hebrews, or, or is there something more grand or, or larger at work? Well, this is that promise that when Messiah comes, his people will come to him. He'll bring healing and restoration, that the, the, the elect of God will be brought in through him, that the head of the church would gather his body and rule over them with love and grace and faithfulness. And then he elaborates on this, that his brothers shall be added. He shall be, or I'm sorry, and he shall stand and, and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, taking this common picture of what it means to shepherd, applying it to Messiah, supplied by the Lord's power for the Lord's glory, that he will stand. What does it mean for him to stand? It means he doesn't cower. It means he doesn't sit. It means he doesn't take a back seat, that he provides protection and provision for his own. He stands with them where they are. And so his Merry Christmas to us is, I will stand for you. I will stand with you. I will stand in front of you. And when you fall down, I will stand you up and stand behind you. What other promise do you get in life that's grander than that? Brad, there are days where I don't feel it. Amen. There are days I don't feel it either. But praise God, when we don't feel it, we have Micah to come back to and be reminded. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, that the Lord with which Messiah reigns is not a humanistic power. It's God's power. It's God's word. It's God's spirit. It's God's promise. It's God's covenant. It's God's relationship. And so, when a shepherd stands and shepherds with us, beloved, that's intimate. I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of shepherding sheep. You can read about it on your own. But that is a labor of love. And it is a labor. But this is the, the picture of intimate rule, of, of love that we are cherished Known by name, blessed, blessed by God. So that when you meet another, a fellow Christian, hey, how are you? I'm blessed. I used to kind of scoff at that. I think, well, what a cheap come, come, comeback. Now I'm like, oh, because we are. <laughs> because we are blessed. We are blessed. And when we tell another person, despite my circumstances, I'm blessed. That is a true statement the truest statement we could actually make. And we can come back round to Micah 5 to be reminded of that. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. We dwell secure. This is a unique gift of the shepherd king. You don't get this anywhere else. This is not political. This is not a cultural statement. This is not about worldly gain. This is about the very thing that we need, which is eternal life has been given, and we dwell securely there. And so what this also means is that we do face hardship, and we do have to bear up under strains. And we don't do that alone. In two ways, it really happens in this, in this sense that the Spirit of God gives us wisdom and strength to deal with things that we wouldn't naturally deal with well. 
And then the community of God comes alongside us to walk with us and to bless. Why is it important to know and be known for this very reason right here? Is it always easy to know and be known? No. I don't always want to know or to be known because sometimes it's easier to hide. And sometimes it feels safer to hide. And yet, Scripture would call us out of that hiding, however unsafe it may feel or however hard it may be in a moment. And I'm just like anybody else. Those things are hard to do. And yet, God has said, this is a way in which I love you so that when you don't want to be, when you do want to isolate, I can't let you do that because you're not meant to live in isolation. You and I are uniquely designed to need and live in community. And it's hard to pursue that, and we're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to blow it from time to time. But this is the promise of Christ is that I'm going to draw you in, and I'm not going to let you get out of it. So this unique gift of the shepherd king, he helps us bear the strain of life and trial and hardship. This, these are the gifts of, of, of Christmas, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. In other words, 2,000 years plus later, we're still singing his praises, and he, we will sing them 10,000 more years to come and beyond. The last portion of this little prophecy, before it kind of delves back into the Assyrians, and he shall be their peace. You're talking about a message to a culture of war at this point. A culture of war who's lived at war, who's lived under siege, who's lived constantly barraged to have this promise. And he shall be their peace. So this coming one would bring peace for his body. When we think of that word peace, there it is. It's the word you'd expect. It is the word shalom. For those of you familiar with Scripture, and it means wholeness. In some sense, it means a whole perfection. Not that we are perfect, but in Christ we are perfected. There's a peace there, a wholeness there. That doesn't come anywhere else. We won't find anywhere else. Because it's a peace that's marked by two aspects. One, the vertical, that we have peace with God and His law. That through Christ, that's where peace comes the peace of not being under judgment, the peace of not being left to ourselves, that peace that we own, that we, we pursue with God in so many other avenues. But then there's the horizontal, that peace with one another. It does bring peace. It's the very backbone of the community that we enjoy because we have peace with God. We've been given peace with one another, which means that we can lay our burdens on Christ and we can share our burdens with one another in not in judgmentalism, not in condemnation, not in looking askance at one another, but in true charity and Christian joy because we have been given peace with God. So when you look at this, this passage, it's the Old Testament saying, you know, one of my favorite hymns uh, for all the saints. I, I, can't, I can't even sing this stanza without breaking down and I've shared it up here before, but every time we sing it, I just have to collect myself when we sing, For lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The King of glory passes on his way. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. We are still looking for that verse to come to fulfillment. 
but in a meaningful way in the incarnation of Christ. It has. Christ has won. Jesus Christ will sing it at Easter, is risen today. Alleluia. And he reigns. And so when we look at the work of God, he seems, or he used what seems to be least to work his greatest works. Christmas had a very humble start. You know, we, we, we glamorize the, the, the stables and the mangers and, and the little town of Bethlehem. It was dirty. There were animals everywhere. You have a young woman away from her, her parents seemingly in labor and going through immense pain to deliver a child into this world, very alone, sought after, already wanting to bring death and destruction to them. And God took this, this ordinary family from, a, from Nazareth, right, from, from Nazareth, from a less than ordinary town, and through it, he brought something beautiful, rich, redemptive. So we can't, we attribute these works to God. These are God's works. And this holiday time, this Christmas season, is just a reminder to be exceedingly grateful for the incarnation and for the fact that we can now look over, over hundreds of centuries of prophecy and realize that the incarnation wasn't a surprise. God had been telling us for hundreds of years, this is happening. Go back and read Isaiah. Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Christ, as a virgin shall give birth. It's powerful that the prophets testify to Jesus. Go back and reread Daniel and be reminded of the prophets testifying to the coming of Christ. Beloved, we have a rich heritage in Christ this morning. And so when we say Merry Christmas, that is a loaded term. It is merry because Christ died and redeemed us. It is joy-filled because he's given us new life. And we can celebrate because despite whatever hardship we may bear in a moment, Christ is alive and reigning and leading us home. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this day, this, this morning, this time to be together. This passage of Scripture that really does get to the heart of who you are and what you've done. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you that we weren't left to ourselves. Thank you that we were not given over to death and judgment, but that you and your, your wonderful, gracious, sovereign grace and wisdom, you sent your son and you told us you'd do it. You told us you would send one to redeem and then you sent him. So, Father, thank you for that gift. We pause to say, to lay down our burdens at your feet, to lay down our hurts at your feet. We pause to say thank you for providing faithful community to come alongside us and walk with us in hard times. We pause to say thank you for using the least to bring the greatest and that through weakness your power is made perfect. Thank you, Father. In Christ we pray. Amen.